Blog Talk Radio. criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, home of the oldest continuously operating streetcar lines in the United States, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, the state where Bobby Bones, country radio personality, and exuberant Dancing with the Stars contestant was born. Thank you for joining us for episode 24, State of Texas versus Kenneth Foster, Jr., on August 14, 1996, Foster, Mauricio Brown, Julia Steen, and Dwayne Dillard embarked on a series of armed robberies in San Antonio, Texas. In the early morning hours of August 15, Brown shot and killed 25-year-old Michael LaHood, Jr. Tonight, we're joined by Nicholas Nico LaHood, Michael's younger brother. As always, this is a live show, and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael and Nico. Good evening, Lisa. I uh, certainly am glad to be here and uh, be speaking about this uh, here tonight. Uh, this is definitely going to be an interesting case from what I've uh, read and during my research uh, one thing I wanted to point out, yeah, Bobby Bones was born here, and everybody wants him to run for governor every time there's a governor's race. So that our, our, our statutes aren't too high here in Arkansas for who can run for governor. <laughs> I'd love to see that. He'd be a trip. It, it would definitely be interesting. But Mr. LaHood's on. Mr. LaHood, how are you doing tonight? I'm blessed, Michael. Thank you. So. Uh, let me introduce the, the listeners. Uh, Nicholas Nico Hood was born in 1972 in San Antonio, Texas. He's the second son of Michael Hood Sr. and Norma Olivia Hood. He grew up in San Antonio with his older brother, Michael Jr., and younger brother, Mark. Uh, his father, who was an attorney and a former Bear County, County judge, often took young Nico to work with him. And as a young man, Nico decided to follow in his father's footsteps, and he earned his Juris Doctorate degree from St. Mary's School of Law in San Antonio. He is a lifelong San Antonio resident. He's finishing up his first term as uh, uh, district attorney in Bear County in San Antonio. 
And he's also married and the father of four children, Maya, Michael, Leah, and Seder. Welcome again, Mr. LaHood. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate it. Can you hear me? Can you hear me okay? Oh, yes. You're coming through okay. perfectly. Okay, good. So um, let's start, before we talk about the case, um, please just share with us your memories of Michael, your family uh, growing up. There are a lot of parallels. Your birthday and Mark's birthday are right around my birthday. Oh, really? When is your my You're when the is your 16th. Birthday? Mine's the 14th. Mark's is 12th. And you're the 16th. Cool. And well, the Mormons have genealogy web. Mormons have genealogy websites, so I didn't have to do anything nefarious to find that information. <laughs> <laughs> and then also, well, Michael's have... birthday is the same day as my mother. Oh wow! Okay, well, it's, on October third. October third. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. And you're three boys. I'm from a family of three girls. So we're we're all older than also? y'all. No, sir. I'm the I'm the eldest. However, I, my mother was a middle child, and my sister is a middle child. So I know your plight. <laughs> yeah, you know what they say about the middle kid. Uh, I think I fit that bill. But but you know, Mike, uh, Mike. You know, we grew up. You know, less than right, almost two years apart. So I, I didn't even know what it was like to walk this earth without knowing my older brother was in it. And we we were close. I think my parents planned that out for us to be, you know, for to have children close in age. And my wife and I did did similar with our four children. And and I and I have to say it was a, I was it was a blessed childhood. I grew up on the south side of San Antonio, which is more of a of a of a, of a, of a it's the south side is not more of the affluent side of town. You know, my mom went to a very humble high school and had a very humble home, and she was from Laredo, Texas, and. My grandma stayed on the south side, and so my brother and I, we spent a lot of time on the south side of my grandma, and I got to see a very simple side of life, which we were spoiled and had plenty of love, but we didn't have a lot of objects and things in life, which was fine. We didn't know the difference. And and mm-hmm. so I, you know, we went through grade school together, high school together. We just we got in trouble together, did normal stuff, and then, of course, didn't get along like the normal siblings. But I, I can't say that it, it was a... It wasn't a blessed life, you know. We're we're, we're we're blessed to have two parents. They're they're both still with us. My pop, mm-hmm. God willing, will be 82 in January. My mom, her birthday was in August, and they're both still with us. And so, it was good. It was it was a, it was a good life. Mike was a a very protective, loyal friend to to the people that he loved, and very welcoming. He, there was there was never a stranger around him. He 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 mm-hmm. welcomed. He'd bring people home and. And like, man, where'd, where'd you get this guy from? And, and just, you know, I met him at school and when he was going to college and he didn't have anywhere to go to eat. So we brought him home and that was Mike. I mean, he was just very, very warm, very loving, very accepting, and then very protective as well. Yeah. And he was going to law school? No, he had planned to go to time. law school. He was, yeah, he was still in his undergrad. He was doing his undergraduate work. He was planning to go to law school, but he was not actually in law school at the time he passed. Okay. Okay. And he had worked with your dad for a while because your dad's an attorney also in in Bear County and had been a judge. 
correct. That, that, yeah. That's correct. He hadn't he hadn't been a judge at that time yet. He he, he got on the bench years later. But but oh, Mike okay. was serving papers and and was working in the office and was you know began, we both did that. But Mike was doing it more consistently at that time, and he was learning mm-hmm. how to run the office and serve papers and kind of file clerk and file papers at the courthouse. So he was every day at the office with my pop. Yeah, yeah, that's another parallel too because I went into the legal field because my mother was a legal secretary and she often took us to work with her. And I just loved the law. I loved arguing. I loved reading. So it was the perfect fit for me. Yeah. Well, the law to me is the big equalizer. Theoretically, and I understand that that, that nothing is perfect because it's run by people wrapped in flesh, right, humans. But the law theoretically is, is the big equalizer. Theoretically, the billionaire should be treated the same as the person who's working for minimum wage. If you break the law, mm-hmm. you break the law. Whether you can afford to hire uh, you know, a better attorney versus a court-appointed or public defender, that's a different issue. But the law itself is designed to treat everyone the same. So I was always fascinated by the law. I was fascinated about litigating for people that couldn't defend themselves or couldn't mm-hmm. prosecute for themselves and getting justice. And it was always a fascinating area, profession for me. And then I saw my pop and the way he was revered by clients and the way he looked at practicing law and representing people. It was a very honorable profession, regardless of what people think of lawyers these days. And a lot of that criticism is is well-deserved, unfortunately. But my pop was an old-school lawyer who really cared and spent time with his clients, and that really motivated me to, to want to go into law. Yeah, that is... Uh, it sounds like it. I've I've met some of those kinds of attorneys over the years too, and they're they're very rare that they're more interested in their client and doing the right thing than they are with how much money they can make. Because it doesn't sound like money. your your dad was in it for the money. Well, no, no. He I mean he obviously wanted to provide for his for his children and his wife, but no, he I mean he's a, he's a man of honor and. He considered himself an officer of the court, and, and he acted accordingly, and he knew it was a huge responsibility for clients to come in and, and bring their problems to him, whether it was a family law issue, whether it was a will, whether it was a civil case, or whether it was a criminal case. He knew it was a huge responsibility to take on that matter that would affect the whole family, and so mm-hmm. you know, it showed in the way his clients revered him and looked at him. So I just – to me, being a lawyer was, it was a profession of respect. It wasn't what it's looked at today. When I was growing up, I, I thought of it as, as my goal. I want to be like my pop, you know. Right. So, um, I guess, I, you know, is there anything anything else? For, for me, for about, for you? about Mike. Or, <laughs> I can look. I, mean, I, I watched. I watched. I am a killer. Um, okay. I've watched it twice, and you just you did such a great, a great job speaking for victims. I was really impressed by that. That's why I started looking for you and, you know, stalking you on Facebook, <laughs> because I I really wanted to talk to you about uh, not only about the case but about, you know, Michael and your family and, you know, how you've, you've moved on and, and, you know, learned to live with, I right. guess. 
Well, you know, there, there's so much to say. I mean, there's probably not this. This could go into ten shows, to be honest with you. But <laughs> for those people listening, you know, I am a killer is that series on Netflix that I, I get. I was I haven't even seen all the other episodes. I've only seen our episode once, and I and I, it was sent to me in a link before it was actually released. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how it comes up on on Netflix, but it's a ten. Isn't it ten series? There's ten cases they follow of people Correct. on death row, and and they look at the backstory Correct. as well. And so we were episode one or two. I'm not sure how it ended up on, on the series because, like I said, I looked at a link. But And I thought it was fascinating. I was very reluctant when they called me. I mean, here's this group from the U.K. calling, wanting interested mm-hmm. in this story and trying to pitch this series to me. And I was very hesitant. We had dealt with a lot back then, a lot of misinformation, a lot of uh, – I mean, not only were we victimized by, by what happened to my brother, but then – you know, these special interest groups that are not pursuing truth and justice, they, they almost victimize a family again because they, they, they try to switch roles on who's really been victimized, whether it's the offender mm-hmm. or the perpetrator Correct. or the family that actually was affected. And so I was very, I'm very hand, you know, I was very arm length with these people reaching out to me from the UK. And so I vetted them out. I, I spent three to five, three or four times on the phone with them, 30 minutes to an hour at a time, really asking them how they're going to proceed with this series. I'm not going to help you put together another BS story out there that's not accurate and not truthful. And I right. and, and they were asking me questions. And so we were really vetting each other out. And at some point, you know, Lisa, I, I, I felt, and for me, as a man of faith, I prayed about it, and I felt comfortable moving forward. They, they, had, they had shown interest in really wanting to get the truth out there, not taking a side not taking a position, not trying to advocate for anybody, but just pre- present the evidence, let people talk from different perspectives, and then the chips fall where they fall, right? And so Correct. That, I got that feeling, and I, was, I, was, I, I thought they did a fair job in, in doing that. I know it's hard with the limited time they have, and it's such a big story, but, but I thought they did a fair job. And so I, I, was, I was pleased that finally there was an avenue – on a, on a grander scale to get the truth out there because back when we were dealing with it after my brother passed, it, it, we dealt with so much deception and, and so many mm-hmm. people in special interest groups that had an agenda and it wasn't justice. Correct. And that's something, that was one of the things that I liked about the series and I have watched nine of the episodes. I tried to watch the 10th episode, but I, that particular offender, I, I just can't. I don't want to see anything about him, and um, I, and I don't know why. It's just a reaction I had in his initial interview. But no, you you gave the counter to what Foster was giving in his interviews, and um, well, they did. You know, they did do a good job giving both both sides of the story. And, 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 and I agree. And I, I thought that was fair of them. And I, and I, and for me, you know, I always say that there's, there's, there's different perspectives, but there's only one side if you're really focused on truth. And so I'm glad that they, I mean, that's fine. They gave both perspectives. And then when they, when they presented the objective truth, then people could really tell on who was, Still blowing hot air, and who was actually 
sincere about their side. I thought it was obvious, but I mean, of course, I'm maybe I'm too close to it. Right. But I but I would say my that, my problem. Oh, pardon me. Sorry. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> my problem is that I am not one of those people who uh, easily believes anyone who's been convicted of any type of crime because. To me, they have a motive to minimize and lie and deflect from their actions rather than to tell the truth. And I don't like that phrase, his truth, her truth, my right. truth, your truth. There is only one truth. That's right. And that's what I was it's referencing not, earlier. You know, pardon? No, I said that's what I was referencing earlier, that, that there's one truth. There's different perspectives. There might be different right. opinions, but there's one truth. And so I agree with right. you 100%. I, I, don't, I don't like that. For, I don't know who coined it or whatever. You know, Live your truth or speak your truth. You might want to speak your opinion. You might you know, talk about your perspective, but you don't have a different truth than I do. You just have a different opinion than I do. Right, exactly. It, he hit the nail right on the head. So, um, but uh, no, I, I like I said, I was really impressed. And you know, when you were the first time that I watched it, when you were talking about what happened, when you said you, about your aunt telling you that Michael was gone, I burst into tears. And that's not generally me. <laughs> I'm usually very uh, clinical and and not really emotional, but that just that just broke my heart. Mm. That uh, and like I I said, it was at your home, and you know you all were you had every right to be safe and protected at your own home, and that makes it worse almost than had it happened in some other location. Well, you know, I, what I tell people when I share my testimony, I always tell them that it's not like we received a phone call. I mean, I, as, as the DA, I, I, I deal with people who have been victimized and, and victims for a living. And so most, a lot of people, parents, when they get that phone call, that, that dreaded phone call that, that so many parents pray they never get, it, it, it's a phone call. We, we didn't get a phone call. We walked out mm-hmm. through it. And, and so it, it does. Right. It does give a different perspective when when you're actually dealing with your home versus you know kind of an a, an area that you weren't there. You're getting a phone call. You might identify the body later on if if because someone right. from the family has to identify the body. But we were all there at the house. We we watched the investigation. We watched them do their job and secure the crime scene. We watched. I helped them load his body on the gurney once they were finished. And then, of course, mm-hmm. I share with people I, I helped my pop clean up because it was, it yeah. was obviously quite, quite bloody. So this this is reality. I mean, I, I, didn't, I, I wish it wasn't the truth. I'm not making it up, it, it, but it's what we experienced. Mm-hmm. And like I said, that is – and that, that probably is what what touched me more was that, you know, your family's in the house, and then within a second or two – you have to deal with that, and and then the aftermath is all there. Um, it's not like you, like I said, it's not like it happened at 
uh, a shopping center where you could not drive by it, so you'd never have to see it again. Right. I mean, you lived there. Um, right. Now, did, did your did your family move away from the house? No, my 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 parents actually still live there. Okay. Yeah, my parents. I, I you know I I tried to suggest for them to move, but no, they they actually still live there today. Right. Well, that's where they raised the three of you. Right. And so exactly. it, it's it's uh that's very courageous or stubborn. I'm not sure. Yeah. Quite yeah. which, but I, no, I, I, I get it. <laughs> I, I get it. You know, there's a very specific story behind that. My pop uh, wasn't sure if they were going to move. Uh, we all, my, my my younger brother and I still lived with them there at the time. And one of my pop's clients who was a, was a, I guess we'll say it in a nice way, a high maintenance client. Let's just say it that way. And mm-hmm. so he, he just kept pounding my pop after Mike passed that he wanted to talk to my pop. And, and, and you know, even though my pop hadn't, he had to get back to work within a couple of weeks. It, someone, no one was going to take care of his family. He had a tremendous friends that offered their help, but, they're his clients. He's running his own practice. He wasn't mm-hmm. part of the firm. It was his firm. And so he had to get back to work. Well, he, was, he wasn't in the mood to, to deal with a, a difficult or high-maintenance client at that time. And, and so he was going to you know, avoid him and say, look, I'm not available. And, and this individual was very persistent to talk to my pop. And so the secretary went back there and said, Mr. LaHood, um, we'll call him Ray. Ray really needs to talk to you. He said he's going to wait as long as it takes. I mean, it, it, it has nothing to do with anything about the law or his case. And so it intrigued my pop. He called him back. He said, Mr. LaHood, and he was in tears. And this is a kind of a rough, tough guy. He was in tears mm-hmm. because I'm not trying to step out of bounds. I, I don't know what to say or how to say this, but I had a dream about Mike. And he was happy. He was driving a car, and I he drove by me, and then he knocked on my back door and, and told – he said – uh, Ray, please tell my pop to light a candle where my head laid, and and that I'm fine. And he go, and in tears, you know, Ray is telling my pop this, and and he goes, I, I had to tell you, and I I couldn't hold it any longer. I talked to my wife, and she said you need to go tell Mister LaHood. And 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 I'll tell you, Lisa, you know, for about a week, my pop had a white candle where Mike's head laid, and ever mm-hmm. since then, it brought him peace. It brought him peace, and and I think he changed his mind. That that was the moment he changed. Or the, the event or the experience that changed his mind, and he decided not to sell the house after all. That's amazing. Yeah. I, crazy as it might sound, that was a message from your brother. Well, you know, we we believe that. I believe. You know, I yeah. wholeheartedly believe in that because my family has uh, has had that with you know different experiences over the years. I get messages from my mom. I find 11 cents just randomly in a pocket of my pants or on a dresser, on my desk, in my wallet. It's, you know, that's my mom telling me hello Mm -hmm. and letting me know she's still there with me. Right. So, yeah, that was, it was a message to bring your parents some peace. But well, you know, you know, I, like I said, we, we believe that, and so, um, it, it, that was the defi- that was a defining moment in my pop. I believe is making the decision to stay there. So, uh, to go back to your original question, yes, they still live there. 
that, well, no, that's good. That's, you know, don't let, don't let some, someone drive you from your home. It's no, bad no, enough no. that they invaded it. But that is, like I said, it's courageous or stubborn or maybe just, you know, that's where they raised the three of you and they don't want to abandon it. Right. So, but, uh, as I said, I'm not one of those people who believes convicted people. I realize there are people who are probably not as guilty as the state proved they were or that they may not be guilty at all, but the majority of the time they are guilty as proven. Well, it's, it's, not, it's not whether they're not as guilty. Either someone's <laughs> guilty or not guilty. You're right. right. Well, you're, it's, pregnant. You're, you're either pregnant or not pregnant. You're not kind of pregnant. It's, it, it, it's okay, you're guilty, but did the punishment fit the crime? And so people, would, I think what you're alluding to is some people are overpunished for a certain behavior. And then, you know, but, but if they're guilty, they're guilty. Or if they're not, they shouldn't be punished at all. Right. <laughs> And uh, But in Mr. Foster's case, uh, based on all the research that I've done, he was they were out committing armed robberies. And this was not four guys looking for a club, as you said in your interview, right. uh, and as multiple courts and their jury have found, they weren't out looking for a club. You well, don't, no, you see you don't wear a bandana. Right. Yeah. And uh, you don't wear a bandana over your face and carry a forty-four caliber pistol when you're going to ask for a girl's phone number. And as you saw on the show, my parents' house is in a very – yes. it's a neighborhood that's dark. It's, they're way in the back. They knew they were right. going by the, the, indus, the, the kind of an industrial district or some type of mm-hmm. entertainment district where there's clubs mm-hmm. or restaurants around. This is a neighborhood, an older neighborhood. Where people had bigger lots and dark, and so and we driving back there, I thought brought to light this this false narrative that was out there for at least back back early on when when Kenneth got the the reduction in his sentence that yeah. that he was just driving and, and quote unquote happened to be the driver, and then the guy in the car the passenger shot somebody, and now poor Kenneth Foster's on death row. Mm-hmm. I mean that's just correct. So that's so blatantly false, and it's deceptive, and it's in its attempt to try to to lead people the wrong way. And so I just I'm never going to be quiet about that. Um, just because I have no. found peace and I actually released Kenneth and I have forgiven him, to be honest with you, that doesn't mean I'm not going to be passionate. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to speak out when somebody is is misleading others in relation to what happened to my family to my brother. So I'm going to always speak exactly. the truth and let the chips fall where they may. Exactly. I could care less what people think about the truth. You know, it's, truth is the truth. And if he wants true redemption, he has to admit the full measure of the wrong that he did. You can't, you don't get redemption from just admitting the level of moral culpability that you're comfortable with. Well, you're right. And redemption comes through repentance. And repentance. Remember, there's there's different things. There's repentance and remorse. Remorse is I'm I'm sorry I got caught. Like oh damn I got caught. Repentance 
is I'm, I'm sorry enough that I'm going to change my behavior. I'm so sorry, mm-hmm. which is, the term is called contrite. When you have a contrition, it's, it's a contrite heart. It's a sincere sorrow. sorrow. Uh, I'm really genuinely sorry. I'm going to reject the behavior that got me here in the first place, the bad behavior, and then I'm going to speak or confess or live a new way of thinking over my life. And so I'm going to do things differently because the old way got me in a pickle, got me in a bad situation. This, I need to do something new. And that's repentance. That repentance will lead to, to what we call redemption. You have redeemed yourself. The word means you've made it up to people, and, and you're, you're back in even footing with society or with somebody. And so you're not at back at even footing, redeemed, equal with somebody, not equal like lesser, meaning, meaning we're on the same page and, and we're back to normal. Mm-hmm. If you're not telling the truth, because there's no redemption right. without truth, there's no repentance without truth, and then so it's not you're never going to have redemption. So, so you're exactly right. I might have gotten too much in the weeds in explaining it, but I think it's very deep, and people need to get deeper instead of stay on the surface. And so, mm-hmm. it's not that it's not that he people said. Well, there was one person that said, "Well, you don't believe he deserves redemption." And I said, "Well, you say the word deserve that that means someone has to prove that they've changed." They have to prove that they're contrite. They have to be humble, admit their wrongdoing, and, and, and commit to doing things differently. And if somebody's still trying to lie and deceive people and, not, and, and try to shift away from taking responsibility for their actions, well, then there's no redemption. So whether he deserves mm-hmm. it or not, he's not, he's not getting it because he's, he's trying to continue to deceive people. So right. sure everybody is, is capable of being redeemed. I don't care what the offense is. But there's some things that have to happen. You, know, it's not just a freebie. You know, redemption is is a lot of work. Yes, it is. Well, Mister Lahood, this is Michael. Uh, I wanted to ask you something. First off, I do want to say uh, I definitely thank you for coming on, and your story has been fascinating. But from the perspective, I I don't know if Lisa had told you this, but actually, it is. It's going to be, I believe, two years. It's going to be two years, or it just passed two years since it happened. But uh, my uh, uncle was gunned down in a neighborhood in Sherwood, Arkansas, here uh, in a relatively similar, you know, I see a little bit of correlation between what happened um, in a relatively similar fashion. It was actually at his mother's house, uh, right in front of the house and things like that. But what I want to ask you is, um, how did you deal when Governor Scott uh, commuted? I guess he didn't commute his sentence. I'm not quite sure what the uh, legal jargon is for it, but uh, brought his sentence down to a life sentence. Uh, Did you feel anger about that, or were you accepting of it? Because I know you said you had, you know, released the uh, person and you had forgiven them, so to speak. Was there any sort of anger? Did it bring any sort of emotion, or how did that go about with you guys as the family? Yeah, no, great question. The the governor's name was Rick Perry. He was the governor. He's currently serving under the current administration as, as a secretary of, of agriculture or something. I'm not sure, but he was the, it was a, he's energy, a long, I think I think. He was a, energy with an Okay. It might be energy, but, but his name is Rick Perry. He was the governor here in Texas. For, I, I want to say for 12 years, 14, it was for a while. He was the governor for a while. 
he did you, – you had the proper terminology. He did commute the sentence, meaning lessen the sentence, and he's the only one that can do it. He did it in the 11th hour. He did it without calling us, without consulting with us, and, and, and people can have a different opinion on whether he should have called or consulted with us before. But after he made that decision, after the lack of a phone call, after the disrespect to our family, in my opinion, he didn't even meet up with us, to, whether I like it or not. To say, look, this is why I did it. I'm sorry you don't t- you're not taking it well. It definitely wasn't anything personal, but here's my logic. Here's my thinking, right or wrong. He didn't do that. He just totally avoided us because we didn't deserve a meeting. I think that 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 reflects his character. So of course it angered mm-hmm. me back then. I didn't know how to deal with my anger. I was still angry about my brother's murder. I, I, right. I, was, I mean, I, I held Michael. I held bitterness and rage for for years, and that's part of my testimony. I mean, anger, unforgiveness, guys is like cancer to your spirit. It's cancer. And, and the world will tell you, hey, I don't blame you because we are, we are addicted to victimhood. We're addicted to our feelings. We, 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 we love being victims in this society, and I've been victimized, and so I'm not speaking from ignorance. And so, and so when the world gives you no answers, as a matter of fact, the world tells you I don't blame you for feeling this way, Nico LaHood and the LaHood family, all that does is, is – is, add in and buy, help me buy into the deception of, hey, I'm always going to be angry. The world can never make it better. Nothing's ever going to make this better. And then I, I never live up to my God-given potential, and I, I, you just turn into an angry, bitter old guy, you know, which I was heading mm-hmm. towards. I had the equation to do that. And so, yes, I was upset with him. I can, I can say this, and I say this humbly but proudly. I never thought I could be the DA. Because I went through the justice system, as both of you know, before this happened to my brother, I was arrested when I was young and stupid. And so I went through the justice system myself, and I understand redemption. I understand repentance. I understand making things right by your behavior mm-hmm. and living consistently. And, and so I, 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 I didn't – I was angry with, with the governor, and I said to myself, gosh, if I was ever in that position, not, never thinking that never, – I never wanted to be a prosecutor or a DA, didn't think I could. But I said, if I'm ever in that position, I would never not meet with a family. I would never do what he did to our family. And I can honestly and proudly but humbly say I've been the DA for four years. I've, I make life and death decisions almost weekly, and I, there's not been one meeting I've ever turned down. If a family wants to meet with me, I've met with them personally. I haven't sent in another prosecutor. I've been in the toughest meetings you can imagine. I look people in the eye. I, I, I show grace but also firmness, and I give them my reasoning why I made a decision, whether they like it or not. I, and I, I extend grace. I extend love. I'm humble about it, but I'm also you know, very, very secure with my decisions. And, and every, every meeting, even if it started you know, rough, it always ended with respect because they appreciated me giving them the value that they deserve. And so um, I, I, I can honestly say I'm not a hypocrite. I did exactly what I expected Governor Perry to do. I never knew I was going to be that way, but I never forgot my experiences. And so um, I, I did. I, I, although I've released Governor Perry also, I mean, I've, I've forgiven him. I don't forget, and, and I don't respect him. I'm not saying that mm-hmm. we've ever met and he ever extended something. I would, I would not change my opinion of him, but my opinion of him is not very high right now. I can right. certainly understand that, and I appreciate you uh, for sharing that for sure. Nico, sure. another thing I want to know, should his sentence not have been commuted, 
there's a lot of people, especially in me talking with people about my case. My grandma has always been a proponent since it happened that she would want uh, to seek that. Obviously, you know, there's extenuating circumstances, but she said, you know, she would want to seek that. And I've had a lot of people come up to me on the street and say, well, do you feel like that would be justice to seek the death penalty? I want to know from somebody who actually, you know, their family seek that and got it up until, you know, like you said, the 11th hour when Mr. Perry uh, commuted the sentence, did you feel like justice would have been served had he been put to death by the state of Texas on that day? Sure. And let me, I don't know if you knew this. I think you did. I, I witnessed the execution of the shooter about two years, I mean, some years before that. So mm-hmm. this was, uh, under the law of parties, they were both convicted of capital murder. They were both given the death penalty by a jury, not by a judge or not by our family. And so I witnessed Mauricio Brown's execution. It was a very interesting experience. I, I heard the mom next door. I heard her collapse. And I remember realizing when I was, I mean, I watched him take his last breath, as I said in the, in, in the, in the series. And I remember mm-hmm. thinking, man, this guy, he victimized both families. He victimized my family, but he also victimized his mom. Look, his mom didn't raise him thinking, man, someday I, I really hope I could watch him get executed for committing a capital murder. That would be so neat. Nobody thinks like that. Nobody does that. She was destroyed. She collapsed. Her daughter helped her out of the room, and you could hear because it's just a thin wall separating both families with some vents, and they warn you about that. And so I, I, mm-hmm. it, was, it, it had a profound effect on me. Now, did I believe that he should have been executed? Yes. Do I believe as a man of Christian faith that he's in God's hands, and if he, is, if he forgave – if he asked for forgiveness, my faith says he's in heaven, and I'm fine with it. But that doesn't mean that, that there aren't consequences for your behavior on earth. Forgiveness – and accountability are two different things. And so someone can be unfaithful to their wife or husband, and they can be forgiven for that, but that doesn't mean they're going to stay married, right? So there's consequences. Right, exactly. You can, pick, you can pick your choices, but you can't pick your consequences. And so forgiveness has nothing to do – people think that because I say I've forgiven and I'm at peace, that means that I don't believe there should be punishment. No, that, that – it's not retribution. It's not revenge. It's accountability. If people are continually not held accountable for their behavior, well, then there's no, there's, then there's no limits. There's no boundaries, and people are never taught to temper themselves. There's no anchor, so to speak, on the ship. They're just going to drift off forever and, and never control their behavior. So um, I, I do believe it would have been justice, Michael. Matter of fact, the jury told us after, and I believe it was on the, the series – the prosecutor talked about this. They decided on the death penalty on the driver before the shooter. I mean, because right. the, Kenneth Foster, as you know, Lisa, he was on probation at the time of my brother's murder for shooting two other men. They didn't die, but not, right. not because he didn't try. I mean, he shot them in the gut, right. both of them. And it, it wasn't like, hey, I want to shoot them and I hope they don't die. He tried to kill them both. The layperson says mm-hmm. attempted murder. We say aggravated assault with a deadly weapon in the law. And so he, he got something that nobody gets. doesn't matter your mm-hmm. race. doesn't matter who your lawyer is. It doesn't matter how much money you have. Nobody gets probation. He, he was on – I think it was deferred adjudication. So he wasn't Correct. even going to be tried if he kept his nose clean. 
you would not have had. And it was only revoked after capital murder charges. You're spot on. That's the that's the thing. I'm telling you, I've never heard it before since since I've been DA mm-hmm. ever. When I was a defense attorney, no. no one has ever. I've never heard of someone being on deferred adjudication. That's a special type of probation that says that if you keep your nose clean and you do everything you're supposed to do, then then you're not going to have a conviction on your record. You will not be convicted I, of a crime that you removed. I, in my yeah. research, I have to say from observing Lawrence Foster, his grandfather, senior, I think Mr. Foster had something to do with that because Mr. and Mrs. Foster, his grandparents, gave him every chance. He had a chance of being a good, straight, and narrow person, but he wanted street life. Well, right. I mean, his, 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 and I met, by the way, on the show, Lisa, they yeah. showed I, me meeting with Mr. Foster, but that was my third time meeting with him. I met with him mm-hmm. one time by myself. The second time I met with, with Mr. Foster Sr., I met with him and his son, Kenneth's dad. And so, and, mm-hmm. and they both were very appreciative that we met. I told them I hold no ill will towards them. They were appreciative. They took, we took pictures together. I blessed them. They blessed me too. It was a very – and Mr. Foster, the grandpa, the one on the show, he knew my position on this issue. And, and, and so I, I would like to clear up some of that stuff. I mean people – I think some people maybe might have got the false impression that I, I had some authority that I could let – I could get Kenneth Foster out of prison if I wanted to right now. But, but I, I have zero authority over that, even as the no. elected DA. I have zero yeah. authority. That that comes from the Court of Criminal Appeals. That's going to have to come from either a governor or, or a higher court. No DA, nobody can do anything about Kenneth Foster right now. But even right. if I could, I wouldn't because it's not the right thing to do. I mean, so right. But that doesn't mean I have to be angry about it. I'm just, just matter of fact. And, I mean, he should serve out his sentence. Right. And I, and I 100% agree with you because until Kenneth Foster says we were out, we were committing armed robberies. Mauricio was going to rob Michael and Mary Patrick, and he screwed up, and I knew what he was doing. I knew what he was going to do, and I knew the thing that people don't understand with law of the parties or even felony murder, you don't have to necessarily intend to kill someone. If you're doing well, something well. that can result in death, like an armed robbery with a forty four caliber pistol, Someone could die, and it doesn't take Miss Cleo to tell you that it could end badly. And he would have, I think he would have to say, you know, exactly what they're doing. Stop giving these stories about going looking for clubs and looking for people for his record label that he didn't really seem to have. And then you get into the the armed robbery uh, near the Alamo at that hotel where they carjacked the guy. And took his two cell phones, which were in the trunk of Kenneth Foster's car. That's right. I mean, the Babe in the Woods Act, it, it, didn't, it didn't really play for me the first time. And after I did my research and watched it again, it really didn't play for me. Well, and, 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 he's, and I know the people. He's manipulative. People, he's very manipulative. And even at the end, he tried to be manipulative. And, and, mm-hmm. and I know there's only 55 minutes, and, and I thought they did a very good job, and there's so much to this uh, situation, this case, 
collaterally surrounding it, and they couldn't cover it all. I know that, but you did your homework, and and I thought that I think that's very good. This was no Boy Scout. This guy was the ringleader. He's on probation for shooting at two other men. This is not a guy that that Mauricio Brown said, "Hey Kenneth, will you want to take me to the store real quick?" And then he ends up killing people at the store, and now Kenneth Foster's on death row. That's just not the way it was. Mm-hmm. But that's the narrative. That's the way it was portrayed. I mean, there's you know very small amount. I would say five percent of the comments I've gotten privately and, and you know on Facebook or whatever, just anywhere, are are things as ridiculous as justice for Kenneth Foster, free Kenneth. I mean, based off what? I mean, this is not right. a distant person. Here's a guy that, that, that was driving as they committed two armed robberies before they came to my parents' house, and then he's on that special type of probation for himself shooting two other men, and only by the grace mm-hmm. of God did they not pass away. I mean, so this is not a guy that, what, how did I find myself here? He knew exactly what he was doing. This was not the first night they were carjacking people. They smoke drugs. I mean, they do drugs all day long. At nighttime, they carjack people, get more money, and they go back to doing drugs. That was their little Correct. MO, and that's what came out of the Correct. investigation. So this was only one night of many armed robberies they committed over, over a period of time. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's, you know, but there are, there are so many people out there who take the self-serving statements on documentaries and things like this and, and take them to heart and believe them and don't look beyond at the court records. Right. And one of the reasons I use the court records, the appellate opinions, the briefs of both sides, uh, defendant and state, is because you get a you get a picture of all the facts, but you also get a picture of the facts that the jury got through the direct appeals and the, the post conviction. Right. And like I said, I mean, you know, those the unfortunately Mauricio Brown testifying I think ended up with some of their their prior armed robberies being admitted during the guilt innocence phase. Possibly mm-hmm. because Mauricio Brown denied ever doing any such thing. So uh but yeah, I mean the story he's selling now is the same one that the jury didn't buy and the same one that the appellate courts have not bought, and uh, I don't know if you've ever read Royal Ferguson's opinion. Even no, though he I granted don't. relief on the sentencing issue, um, he was very critical of Foster's claims that they were just out driving around, and Dwayne Dillard directed them to drive into your neighborhood, and you know they weren't following Mary Patrick's car, right? Uh, so yeah, yeah. It well, is. like I said, anybody that, that does an objective view or review of the facts of this case, I, I think I think gets to, to to the same place that anybody else would, and that's that that this person is manipulative. This is not an innocent person. Whether someone supports the death penalty or not for the law of parties, that's another discussion, and, and I think it's appropriate under the law of parties. People don't understand what the law of parties really means and how mm-hmm. it plays out, they just think, well, wait a minute, you're right. not the one that pulled the trigger. Why should you be punished as if you pulled the trigger? And they really exactly. think it out critically, and, and, I, and I take the time to explain it to them, you know. And, and I love your explanation to Lawrence Foster was great. 
Uh, because you told them, you know, there are people out there that manipulate other people to go do crimes. Those people that do the manipulation should, you know, should suffer the consequences as well as the people. And we're going to be discussing law of parties and felony murder rule next week. Okay. And I would love to have you back well, to sure. talk about those. Felony murder in Texas is the loss of life occurs during the commission of a felony, obviously not mm-hmm. intended. Capital murder deals with certain crimes committed to, to, to in certain situations. You're dealing with murdering two people in the same incident, murdering yeah. a police officer, murdering a child under 10, committing a murder in, in the act of, of a certain enumerated felony, armed robbery, sexual assault, you know, kidnapping, right. things of this nature. And so, so the law of parties, I, the way I really hit it home and make people understand it is like 9-11, bin Laden. He didn't fly the planes. He didn't pass out the box cutters. He didn't teach anyone to fly the planes. He didn't coordinate anything. He just took credit for the group that actually did all mm-hmm. that behavior. And under the law of parties thinking, President Bush at the time, he exacted the death penalty on bin Laden without due process. He said, we are going to bring who's ever responsible for this to justice, dead or alive. Right. 94% of Americans were okay with it. Why? Because they yeah. felt victimized. So the law of parties Correct. in Texas says that if you know, encourage, or further a crime, know, encourage, or further, then you are held responsible as if you committed the crime. No different than a mafia boss that gets held responsible for the 19 murders of their soldiers because they're the ones mm-hmm. that directed it, they encouraged, they furthered it, and they're responsible for the group. That, that brought it out to, to fruition. So it, it, it's, it's really not that difficult, but people it, – it goes against certain people's sensibilities when they're arguing for an agenda, and it's usually special interest groups that make a big issue about it. Correct. And like I said, the, the, the distinction, they didn't kill anybody, but, but for their actions, nobody would have died. Right. You know. Right. And that's I mean, always one of I mean, my counters. If Kenneth Hood had told them, no, we're not following that car tonight, and kept going straight when Mary Patrick turned left, mm-hmm. your brother would be alive. Correct. That, 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 absolutely. So, um, so that's, you know, that's how I look at it on a lot of these cases. If you're out two guys armed ro- you know, committing armed robberies and one of them has a gun, it's you know it's substantially certain that someone could die, right? Absolutely, because a gun we had inflicts serious harm. Right, we've had situations where someone didn't know there was a gun. They said we 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 were trying to rob people with a with a with a stun gun or with a you know a shocker or with just mm-hmm. this or that or, or you know or it was unloaded. I unloaded it, and you know there's all kinds of scenarios, but when you know. Someone is using an armed, a loaded weapon in those type of scenarios with that type of emotion and that type of high risk situation. There's a good chance, good likeliness, likelihood that someone could, and it's foreseeable that someone could lose their life. Mm-hmm. You're held just as responsible. It's no different than the lookout person that says, "Hey, hurry up, hurry up! Someone's coming! Someone's coming! Shoot that guy! We can't have any witnesses." Well, if you didn't pull the trigger, you're still held accountable for it because. Under the law of parties, you furthered, encouraged, or helped out the actual crime. So it, it really makes more sense. People, more people agree with it than they, they care to admit. 
But right, it, it's got to be under specific circumstances, of course. I mean, you don't just throw out the law of parties willy nilly and, and and try to fit a circle in a square. It's got to fit the facts of the case. And we look at all those mm-hmm. things when we're, when we're analyzing the law of parties. We don't we're not irresponsible with it. Right, right. And you know, in this case. He shared in the proceeds. He drove to the robberies. He drove away from the robberies. Uh, he went to wherever people Julius Steen pointed out to him and went to where they are were. So, you know, he wasn't just driving around and they said, let's go commit some armed robberies. And I had said when Michael and I talked about this briefly, I said if I were, you know, if I were him and I really didn't want to be engaging in armed robbery. I would have pulled over and said, get the hell out of my car. Y'all do what you want to do, but I'm not driving you around for it. And that would have been right. it. And saying I was, you know, peer pressure. I was uh, too, you know, I wanted them to like me or something. I, I mean, he's manipulated. It, it, his manipulation is so obvious. Right. But uh, you're, you're, I, I, I agree, but again, you can have there are those small you know group of individuals that like have their own mind made up or they have an agenda, and so yeah, I'm I've had some interesting messages. Not many, I, like I said, I will say probably five percent. I haven't done the numbers on it, but it's a small amount. I mean, the vast, vast, vast majority of people have been very encouraging and positive, and mm-hmm. and I appreciate it. But there are those. You know, I'm not. To me, as well, that's out of line. If I didn't agree with you, I would leave you and your page alone. Right. You know, um, that's another that's another problem with today's, I guess, society. <laughs> Everybody wants to have their say, no matter who they hurt. I know yeah, we, from yeah, you know right. other victims' families that. It it hurts when you come to them and say, let these innocent people go, when you have no say in where they are or how they are, and no say in whether they're released or not, just as demonstrated with the the commutation. You guys didn't get a say. Rick Perry made that right. choice, and he's not one of the brightest bulbs in the chandelier well, no, when not. you look at Texas governors. Yeah. <laughs> so, but um, he should have at least contacted y'all and said, "This is what I'm gonna do, and this is why I'm gonna do it." And well, at but least but let you I'll have even, that. I'll, I'll even give him a little. I mean, bit. not I'll that you could have said yes or no. Yeah, it, it, we had no say so. But I'll even give him. I'll even give him a little bit of leeway. He, even if he didn't call us before, at the very least, he should have met with us after. At the very least, mm-hmm. you know, and he didn't do that. Right. He, he didn't do that. Right. So, like I said, I, I although I have, uh, you know, moved on from it and found peace and over the whole situation. So I've moved on from from Governor Perry also, but I don't respect him, and I would tell him straight to his face. Mm-hmm. So, well, we're going to take our little uh, our mid-show break, and I guess when we come back, we'll we'll talk about what Michael likes to call the 
meat and potatoes of the case, even though we've touched on points here and there uh, in discussing Foster and his manipulation. I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb and say probably a sociopath. But uh, we're going to take our little break. (laughs) And uh, we're going to take a little break, and then we'll come up and talk about the meat and potatoes. I think talking about the arrest. Uh, which occurred within like an hour of it was quick, yeah. Everything that happened, which is a great in and of itself. So we'll be right back. deals for your vaping needs and accessories, then check out the guys at Sub-Ohm Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at Sub-Ohm Vapors, located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas, want to see you. Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub-Ohm Vapors. Vape it like you built it. sure are back and you know <laughs> ready to talk about the meat and taters yeah so uh foster dillard seen and brown were arrested about an hour later at a gas station near 
your house? How far away did they go before they were stopped? Yeah, I'm I, I'm not sure. It was off of a of a highway called sixteen oh four. So it was it was definitely within you know fifteen minutes or so of the house. So I, I don't know exactly the mileage, but it was it was. I mean, they, they this wasn't a, a day long, week long investigation. They were they were actually apprehended that same night. I would say it was in. I would say safely an hour. Of, of the, yeah, of the that, there weren't a lot of details, but they did mention that. And Foster was driving erratically, and that's what drew uh, attention. And then, of course, he wanted uh, Brown to put the gun in his underwear instead of stashing it in the car, which right. shows he was trying to distance himself even then. Well, it, it, uh, it shows that he's lead, he's leading the pack. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So, um, and then, now why weren't Dillard and Steen, I know they were facing charges on another murder. So was that why they elected not to try him? Well, they, they, they I guess I wasn't the, the DA at the time, obviously. There was another prosecutor, but the prosecutors, and I understand this process now, they, they struck a plea bargain with those two. They, they were non-shooter, non-driver. In the back seat, they so their culpability, as we say, was less, and they worked out plea deals to testify against Foster and Brown for a plea bargain. They were also involved in what we called here locally at the time the shuttle bus murder, which was another murder that happened that actually went federal, and federal prosecutors and the guy that handled the case is a close friend of mine, and he said, Nico, I saw that Netflix thing. And that Kenneth Foster is full of it. He didn't say it, though, by the way. And he said, <laughs> that guy. That he had an guy, FH. Yeah, that, that guy was the ringleader. And so, mm-hmm. you know, um, that it was just, it was, he, he knew. I mean, so, so they were involved in another murder. So they had another case to deal with. They had the state case they pled out on, and they testified against Foster and Brown. Okay. Well, Steen testified. I don't think Dillard ever testified. Well, he he might not have, but he definitely was available to. They worked out the case. Mm -hmm. They didn't try those cases. The only only reason why cases are tried, as you know, is because whatever plea bargaining between the prosecutors and the defense attorneys breaks down because there's not an agreement, so then they have to go to a jury. I had to make an assessment today on a murder case where it was a capital murder because a seven-year-old was shot. But it was between two people, two groups of people that were talking between each other, threatening each other, arguing. And it's unclear whether the group that was with the little girl shot first or after the other uh, shot, both sides shot. And so now you have a self-defense situation. You have defense of third person. You have all these potential mm-hmm. defenses. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was – you know, I had to make a decision to go a different route, not to go capital murder, definitely not to seek the death penalty. And so you, we, prosecutors have to make those decisions all the time. Yes, I, I'm aware of that. And sometimes you have someone who's uh, indicted on other crimes, but you've convicted them of capital murder, and then there's a, you know, almost a security risk to try and try them for those crimes. So right. you don't prosecute them, and that's a discretionary thing. 
that you know yeah. you have to decide whether it's worth the security risks of a capital murder uh, convict in your county jail for a trial. Yeah. Well, there's so, a lot of things. You know, for my, for me as 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 a DA, I, I really always assess the right thing to do for everyone involved, for the for the people that have been victimized, for the victim, for the community, for law enforcement, and for the citizen accused, for everybody. And so it's mm-hmm. not a one size fits all. So I don't I never no. let a monetary decision go into what justice requires. But to me, it's it's always based off the evidence and what's the right outcome. And so, right. You know, the, the, the prosecutors at the time made the decision they made, and, and I support them. Yeah. And like I said, it's it's not a monetary thing. It's a, a, a security risk. Somebody who's been convicted of capital murder, they don't have much to lose if they, you know, try and escape from the jail. Oh, while I they're awaiting, sure. while they're being tried on, sure. you know, additional charges. So, um, but they they were Brown and and Foster were both indicted for capital murder, and the prosecution had the prior armed robberies, the gun, the phones from the prior armed robberies, and Mary Patrick's testimony and Steen's corroboration of her testimony as an accomplice. Well, they also had the physical evidence. They had gunshot residue. They had they had a, they had a body. They had, they had a gun. Oh, well, that yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. They had they had, uh, they had did, other stuff too. Yeah, and then well, they also had you and and your dad and able to kind of pinpoint timing and things like that as well. Yeah. So. Um, and then the defense case was more, let's see, uh, Brown got out of the car to ask Michael for Mary Patrick's phone number. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Carrying a forty four yeah, caliber was, weapon. And yeah, he it was, it was, it said was ridiculous. he... Yeah. yeah. Oh, I know. <laughs> it's very, very ridiculous. Um, that you know, it's crazy to think that then that the jury didn't, you know, the jury wasn't going to buy that. And like I said, right. was Mary Patrick the only one who uh, mentioned the bandana? I thought I read that Steen testified that he had the ba- bandana over his face. Well, but even if Steen didn't, if Mary Patrick can identify what the bandana looked like and the bandana is found in the car, how would she have known mm-hmm. that unless he was wearing it? I mean, so there, there's right. other ways to get to the same result, you know. So, so we didn't, I mean, they didn't need Steen to, I mean, it helps, but the fact that she knows what the bandana looks like, it, how would she know that unless, number one, she was in the car, which she wasn't, or he came out wearing it? Correct. So, and I've, I've just gotten a message from Chris uh-huh. with your office. Um, I, I think he needs you to, to contact him. So I really appreciate your time. If you'd like to come back next week, shoot me a message on Facebook, have Chris, Chris text me. Because I would love to have you talk about law parties, felony murder, and 
and those uh, situations where it becomes capital murder or it's just, you know, life in prison or That's something less than that. And every, and every and state it, might have different statutes. Correct. But I can definitely talk correct. to you about Texas and generally. But, yeah, I'll have Chris. Uh, maybe you can con- communicate with Chris. And I was wondering, I kept feeling my phone vibrating. Maybe that's him trying to get a hold of me. So. <laughs> that was, yes. So uh, anyway, thank you again. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your story. And um, it just, this has been a great, awesome show. And it's only been an hour. Right. So time has already well, flown by. Well, thank you very much, and, and like I said, I'm sorry that I'm being pulled away, but I will, uh, I'm happy to, to, to organize another time to come back. Oh, great. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You have a great night. Thank you both. Take care. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And, you know, that was uh, Mr. LaHood, uh, who is the district attorney now in Texas. I mean, that's definitely – uh, such a crazy story, and you know it, it's especially crazy for me on a personal level to listen to everything that happened, especially you know it, it happening right in front of his parents' house. Uh, you know, so mm-hmm. many, so many parallels to what happened with my uncle that I definitely felt compelled to ask those questions because you know he has been in somewhat a similar position to what I was in, you know, two years ago, and even you know still to this yeah. day because we don't know. Who committed that crime? But still, you know, I, I was fascinated with his answers. I was fascinated with everything, hearing about the story about his family. So I definitely uh, look forward to hearing from him again. Uh, I, I got a little bit lost in uh, listening to you guys. Uh, where exactly uh, were we? Are we at the uh, – I, I know you guys were talking about the bandana. Uh, right. We were, we were talking about the defense case. case. Oh, the well, defense we kind case. of summarized okay. the prosecution case because, I mean, they had uh, they had the gun, they had Michael's body, they had Nico and his dad, who basically were ear witnesses. They had an eyewitness, Mary Patrick, who was a young lady who was with Michael. They were returning home after having dinner with a friend. Or they were returning to LaHood's house. Mary was with him. Um, And they were, they pulled up to the house. Foster and these other guys followed them on this circuitous route into this strictly, completely residential area of San Antonio. Right. And they followed them. Mary Patrick and Michael pulled into their into the hood driveway because the the houses are set back. They've got big yards. The driveway is long. It goes up a slope, and then you have a carport. And it's like eighty feet from the carport to the street. Right. And uh, they they followed them. They passed the house, turned around at a dead end, and came back. Mary Patrick wondered who was following them because, who you know, Foster had the brights on. And so she was at the end of the driveway when they drove by. Right. And she wanted to see if she knew who these people were. 
she didn't. She turned to go back up, up the driveway. The car pulled away and then backed up. Mauricio Brown got out carrying 44 caliber pistol with a bandana over his face. Mm-hmm. Walked up to Michael. Michael told Mary to get in the house. So he was doing everything he could to, you know, protect her. And Mauricio Brown pointed the gun at him in the face and demanded his wallet, car keys, and money. Right. Right. And Michael said, she's got the keys. And then Mary Patrick heard a bang. And Michael died instantly. So, um, and again, you know, go ahead. There's, there's no way that you can see those facts as anything but armed robbery. Right. Absolutely. And and unless you're, uh, Kenneth Foster Jr. And you want to say, Hey, we were, uh, just out looking for guys to sign to my record label. Right, and and Mauricio Brown was uh, getting out to go ask for Mary Patrick's phone number. Or he was uh, getting out because Kenneth Foster, because Michael shot the bird at him, which I wasn't even going to go into that part because that's just ridiculous. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, Foster, I, I thought I told you about I'm a Killer on Netflix and Kenneth I, Foster. I, I, I'm you not just sure haven't had you a may chance have. to watch it. Yeah, yeah I was about to say, it, uh, this last week's kind of been hectic. I've been doing my yeah. research when I can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, But anyway, yeah, the defense case was that uh, Mauricio Brown wasn't trying to rob Michael. He was just going to ask Michael for Mary's phone number. Okay, well, this is another thing that makes no sense to me. If a guy and a girl are together, you're a man. Would you go to the guy and ask the guy for that girl's phone number? By any stretch of the imagination? Um, that would be a no. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so, um, and uh, that that Brown claimed that he saw a gun in Michael's belt. Or a holster, and he heard a click like a nine millimeter. Right. And that's why he shot Michael. Now, Michael's not found with a gun. Michael wasn't carrying a gun. But, really? you know, if, if you've ever watched, if you've ever watched cops, you've seen the stories that these, some of these people come up with. And yeah, like of course. When, you know, they're caught dead to rights, but they, they come up with a story. And, um, yeah, of course. The jury they're, did not buy the story. They're never doing anything wrong, and the, the, right. they're just being harassed and all that good stuff. Right. And um, right. As, as we said, they, they were caught about a probably around an hour later. Foster was driving erratically, and they were pulled over. And, and you know, uh, in the car they find the gun, they find the bandana, they find the four guys stoned to the gills. 
the prosecutor says stoned to the bone, but I, I say gills because I'm from Louisiana. And um, they have, you know, like I said, they had this history of armed robberies, and Kenneth Foster was on deferred adjudication for a prior shooting. Not long before right. Michael's murder. So, uh, the you know, the, the jury did not buy the explanation. They didn't buy the defense's case. And so both yeah, Foster absolutely and not. convicted. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous if you could buy that case. But uh, let's talk about the penalty phase. Was it a rather quick process? I would imagine yes. I would probably come back rather quickly. The trial and the penalty phase were very quick. I don't have the exact dates, but I think the trial and penalty phase was all within like late April or early May. They were convicted right. and sentenced in early May. And they were both sentenced to death. Uh, Brown was sentenced to death as a shooter. Foster was sentenced to death under law of the parties, which says as the driver in these armed robberies, he's as culpable legally for the death of Michael LaHood as Mauricio Brown. Absolutely. Absolutely, as he should be. You know, in this case, I I completely agree with uh, Mr. LaHood in that, you know, you're just as culpable. If you don't actively try to say, hey, no, don't do this, you're being stupid, you know, et cetera, you're Mm -hmm. you're just as culpable as the person who pulled the trigger, in my opinion. This kind of goes back to what we were talking about, you know, uh, with the murder for hire thing, you're not actively Mm -hmm. trying to stop it. So uh, I'm pretty sure that you knew what they were doing. You uh, didn't actively try to stop it, so then you, you're just as responsible. You, you didn't do anything to prevent the crime from being committed, and in some cases, let's be honest, I look at it this way. You almost helped it by not stepping in. Mm-hmm. And Foster, as, as we, we said, Foster was the one driving. Julia Steen was spotting victims. Um, and as right. you know, Nico, as Nico said, when they were pulled over, Mauricio Brown wanted to hide the gun in the car, and Foster said, "No, you hide that in your underwear. Don't hide it in my car." Right. Which Mauricio Brown didn't do. He he wrapped it in the bandana and uh, put it under the driver's seat of the car because Brown and and uh, Dillard were in the back seat. And Steen was in the front seat. So, right. um, like I said, the, the under that, there's no, there's no way you can't see that as an attempted armed robbery, in which Michael would have died. And when you're committing armed robberies with a pistol, the odds of somebody dying are like ninety ten, especially when the pistol's pointed at the person's head. Right. And they'd committed two armed robberies earlier in the evening, and either one of those could have resulted in a death because Mauricio Brown was 
pointing the pistol at the victim's head. They robbed a waitress who was by herself. And then they robbed a man and two women who were outside like a mini mall. So they were going around looking for easy prey. Right. Absolutely. That that makes no sense that, you know, anybody could believe anything but that. Let's talk about the direct appeal. Anything new raised in this, or are they just like, man, this is a bad rap and all that good stuff still? Well, on the direct appeals for Brown, um, I don't – the only – one of the issues – Brown didn't really have any issues that he could raise. Um, although they did raise issues because Foster and Brown were tried together. And I think they both challenged that. Um, they challenged the di- district attorney limited their cross-examination of Mary Patrick. Right. Uh, because they wanted to go into areas that were not relevant. And the, the, Court of Criminal Appeals and later the habeas and post-conviction courts ruled that, you know, the judge has every right to uh, control the admission of evidence in a trial. And what they sought to admit was not proper. So, right, absolutely. Um, you 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 can't you can't go off in left field when questioning somebody, especially. I mean, that's just. That's just Correct. common sense to me. Well, I think a lot of defense attorneys think that it should be no holds barred and that anything they want to, anywhere they want to go. And if you watched any of the Jody Arias trial, even Dalia DiPolito's trial, you know, they wanted to go um, into things that just weren't relevant. But they, they, the aim of the defense is to deflect as much attention away from the prosecution's case as they can. And so if they can attack the credibility of a witness with something insignificant, then, you know, that's what they're going to do. Right. Absolutely. And then on direct appeal, Foster challenged the sufficiency of the evidence against him under law of the party. Because his claim was he didn't know that they were committing armed robberies, and uh, Mauricio Brown was not trying to rob Michael LaHood because he said he wasn't trying to rob Michael LaHood. Right, of course. Um, of course. And if I, say, if both, I say it, I'm not doing it. Yeah. Both of their uh, both of their sentences and convictions were affirmed on direct appeal. Okay, so uh, then and, you got a the post conviction, correct? Yeah, in state post conviction, um, they raised some issues regarding the trial judge, uh, who is also presiding over the state post conviction. Uh, as Nico said, his dad was an attorney in San Antonio. And at some point, he guaranteed a loan that the judge had taken out 
mm-hmm. uh, after his election. Right. And they raised an issue regarding that. Apparently, the judge did recuse himself from Foster's case, but then didn't recuse from Brown's case until after uh, a hearing and negative comments from the defense attorney raised the judge's blood pressure and the judge in open court berated the attorney for those statements in the media. Right. Uh, right. After after that, this was after hearings had been held and testimony had been taken on Mauricio Brown's state post-conviction writ. So after that happened, the judge decided to recuse himself. The judge who took his place uh, did not grant the defense request to start from square one and hold all the hearings over again and take all the testimony again. He rendered his opinion based on the record from the hearings held before the prior judge. Okay. And so they challenged, uh, Mauricio Brown challenged that, and uh, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals denied relief to both of them on their state post-conviction. And unfortunately, the... The writs and the opinions and the trial records aren't available online. So I can only cobble together what they challenged in federal court. Right. So am I reading this correctly? Do they get a kind of a uh, little small victory in federal court on the habeas? On Kenneth Foster got a small victory in federal habeas at the district court level. Judge Royal Ferguson, while he wrote a scathing opinion about Foster's actual innocence claims and some of his challenges to uh, trial court evidence and limitations of cross-examination of Mary Patrick and those things, he did ultimately grant relief on sentencing based on law of parties. Um, because it was his opinion that three U.S. Supreme Court cases entitled Foster to Relief on the sentencing issue. Right, right. And um, it was a small, brief victory because the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal first, due to the fact that uh, the the rulings that the judge applied, he was applying them retroactively because they didn't exist at the time Kenneth Foster was tried. And so, okay. so okay. that's kind of it in a nutshell. Um, and there's also there was a a lot of talk about the the findings that the judge felt should have been made by the jury. Mm-hmm. Those findings being made by the court of criminal appeals was acceptable, 
even under the under the law as it existed at the time. Right. Right. So So what was the reaction to Mauricio Brown's actual execution that went through? Uh, well, as Nico said, he and his brother Mark attended, and it it was July of 2006. Um, in the weeks prior to the execution, Mauricio Brown did petition for DNA testing. Mm-hmm. Mauricio Brown claimed that he had been threatened by Foster, Steen, and Dillard to take the fall for Michael LaHood's murder. And that Dillard was the one who actually killed Michael. That request for DNA testing was denied. They um, they also, when that didn't work, they kind of went back to he was not robbing Michael LaHood, and the state didn't prove he was robbing Michael LaHood. Right. And most of their, most of their challenges were in the media with the easy audience. Right, of course, because, you know, everybody's um, sympathetic. Because it's, it, so many people, right, were sympathetic. Um, and I think they also did attempt to raise a mental uh, defect claim. Okay. And okay. that was not successful, and Mauricio Brown's execution went forward. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I just want to say this is, you know, as you as you heard with Nico and, um, you know, the family, the LaHood family was not celebrating Mauricio Brown's death. Right. Absolutely. Michael and Mark, Nico, Nico and Mark were attending the execution more as a duty for their family and to their brother. Um, and their mother was quoted that, um, you know, this wasn't, she wasn't going to celebrate. She was sad for her son and she was sad for Mauricio. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, I apologize. I guess, uh, Miss O'Brien has, uh, dropped out, but, uh, as she was saying before she, her phone dropped out, she, uh, was saying, you know, it's a situation where the victim's family, they never celebrate the execution. They, you know, it's almost a situation like that isn't revered by any stretch of the imagination. It's just one of those things that unfortunately happens. You know, you heard Mr. LaHood earlier in the first hour say that, you know, it was looked at as just justice finally prevailing in this case so I definitely uh, hazard to think what uh, what happened there uh, as we await Miss O'Brien the uh, next thing that happened in the line of events here was an execution date was set for Mr. Foster and uh, then the uh, 2007 clemency was actually uh, taken care of there was a uh, request, and then, of course, uh, Governor Perry time uh, went ahead and commuted the sentence.
And here we go. Lisa has called back in. Give me one moment here. Oh. And there she is. There she is. Apparently, Blog Talk doesn't really like you very much. (laughs) (laughs) That darn English woman. So, um, yeah, but as, you know, as Nico said, the, the families were victims. Mauricio Brown's family believed he was innocent. They believed he wasn't trying to rob anybody. They believed somebody else was responsible. And um, so they, you know, they were, they were not happy. And I feel bad for them. But there still has to be justice. Absolutely, and that's exactly what uh, Mr. LaHood said in the first hour. He said that's exactly what it boils down to. It's not that he wants Mm -hmm. somebody to die. It's nothing like that. It's that it's justice. Right. And um, So so a execution date is then set for Mr. LaHood, correct? For Mr. Foster. Oh, or excuse me, yeah, Um, Mr. Foster. Foster's execution was set, I believe, for August 30th, 2007. Mm-hmm. And um, basically, there was a lot of public outcry. There was a lot of public pressure. And first of all, they had arguing that Kenneth Foster didn't kill anybody. He didn't pull the trigger. And they also, you know, challenged the proof of armed robbery and claimed that, you know, it wasn't really an armed robbery. Mauricio Brown wasn't trying to rob Michael LaHood. He was just asking for Mary Patrick's phone number. And the gun went off by accident. Wow. Which is another another issue that... Michael Ramos, the DA, mentioned in I'm a Killer. I want you to sit down and watch those episodes because I want to see if you see a case that you want to talk about. Absolutely. I can certainly do that. To go off on a tangent here because I feel like I'm always picking the cases and you're just going (laughs) along with me. (laughs) And I'm always picking the topic. And you're just going along with me. You're the one. You're the one that knows about these. I, I, I unfortunately uh, don't get to see as much on the legal uh, pipeline as you do. So definitely, I mean, oh, okay. everyone you bring is definitely interesting. But uh, I will definitely take Thank a look you. at that series there on Netflix and, and uh, see if there's any know, that definitely strike my fancy. I, I get a lot of my. I mean, I read news articles and see you know, different different things and and somehow or another on my Facebook feed, I guess because I looked at their page one time, I always get these, you know, news items from Innocence Project. Right. <laughs> so, that's what leads me to find things. So watch the news, read the newspaper, watch the criminal, you know, documentaries on Netflix. I, I kinda, I'm kind of thinking about Jessica Chambers. Mm-hmm. At some point before the year ends. So anyway, okay. but the, a lot of a lot of pressure was put on the governor, and I understand Nico LaHood's disdain for Rick Perry, 
and I hold an equal amount of disdain. But I believe that his problem was he was under so much pressure publicly from the media and special interest groups, as as Mr. LaHood referred to him, um, Mm -hmm. that he just didn't think to contact the LaHood family. And, again, there was a lot of controversy because Kenneth Foster didn't pull the trigger. And so to a lot of people, him being executed was not equitable and fair. And so uh, Rick Perry did what I think a lot of politicians do when they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. When the Board of Pardon and Paroles, pardon me, voted to grant clemency, he just caved and did what, you know, went along or approved their, their vote of clemency. It wasn't really him. They recommended clemency. Well, and I will point and out, the, uh, I definitely did, uh, you know, lose a lot of respect for Governor Perry after hearing Mr. LaHood's uh, story tonight. Uh, as far as that goes, yeah, I, I think that's but, completely despicable the way he handled that. The the same thing happened with the Moores and Terry Hobbs with Eccles Baldwin and Miss Kelly. The day before right. the hearing in Jonesboro where the Alfred pleas were going to be entered, Ellington met with them in Mike Allen's office at the Crittenden County Sheriff's Office and said, hey, okay, we worked out this deal and this is what's going to happen. And they weren't given any say. And unfortunately, I think it demonstrates one of the problems with the criminal justice system. The victims don't have a voice, and there is a limit as to what their rights are. True, Um, true. Some states have enacted very comprehensive victims' rights uh, statutes, and they have advocates and... Uh, liaisons who are with the family throughout the entire pretrial, trial, and sentencing process. But that's generally where the support ends. Right. And so they're not there to guide the family through the appellate process, post-conviction process, or executive process of parole, probation, or clemency. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that is a problem, and that's where that's where Nico and his family fell through the cracks, is because yeah, there was nobody there in Governor Perry's office who would say, hey, you know, we have to call the LaHoods. Right. And, and we I have think, to tell I them think the, that's the... I think that's the difference between the situation you mentioned with the West Memphis Three and uh, the Rick Perry case or Mr. LaHood's case is the fact that I think Mr. LaHood would have been fine with just, hey, this is what's going on, not just, you know, blindsided by the whole situation. Correct. Um, And because it was granted, I think, uh, uh, Perry granted clemency three hours before the execution, so – more likely than not, 
Mark and Nico had traveled to Huntsville. Right. And were in the witness area waiting to be taken across the road mm-hmm. to uh, the uh, the area where the execution would be carried out, where the witnesses would view it. Right, um, absolutely. So I can understand. And like I said, I think part of the problem is it should have occurred to Governor Perry on his own, no doubt about it. But I think part of the problem is there was nobody there to say, hey, at least, you know, let's call Michael LaHood in San Antonio. Because the Mr. and Mrs. LaHood, the parents, did not attend. Right. Right. So, uh, but again, I, I, I agree. Governor Perry should have called them and said, you know, the the boards voted. I feel that that, you know, that's what I should you know, accept their recommendation and grant clemency because he didn't shoot anybody. Right, right. And so he's still going to be sentenced to life in prison. So and he's still, still going to have to serve. Yeah. And speaking of that, there's still a, you know, people are still, for whatever reason, working to overturn even that aspect of correct. it, Correct. Correct. Um, Now, he doesn't have any – well, and that's another thing, and I I should have reminded you last week and told you to make time and watch it. Mm -hmm. And I apologize for that because that – I dropped the ball on that one. Because I think if you'd been able to watch I'm a Killer, you would see, you know, what's what's going on. Foster does not have anything official. He's not. He doesn't have any anything filed in court, federal or state. But, uh, you know, his argument is, I didn't kill anybody. This wasn't an armed robbery. Uh, Mauricio Brown was a class clown. He was asking for a girl's phone number. That's all this was. So I should not be serving life in prison. And in um, a killer, he talks about his death sentence. I was sentenced to death. I was sentenced to death. That's not fair. Well, you're not sentenced to death anymore. Now you're sentenced to right. life in prison. And in Texas, life in prison only means you do 40 years. Right. So he's eligible for parole in 2038. Wow, and you know that's probably that that's um, probably something that sticks in the crawl of uh, Mr. Hood a little bit. Well, I I can tell you that he's not going to get parole if he goes in there and denies participating in any armed robberies, denies this was an armed robbery attempt, denies you know, anything more than a casual acquaintance with with, uh, Brown, Dillard, and Steen, uh, he's not going to get parole. Because like redemption, to get parole, you have to admit what you did. Right. You have to admit the truth of what you did. Not 
the version that, that you serves choose. you best because right. it makes you seem innocent of your charges. Um, right, that makes sense. So, but I and I feel bad for you know his his grandparents. He had a hard life. No doubt about it. His parents were drug addicts. Uh, he was exposed to violence and criminal conduct at a very young age. Uh-huh. Uh, he was exposed to drug use at a very young age. But his grandfather and his grandmother were not – they were upstanding citizens in San Antonio. Right. And they brought him to live with them, and they, you know, got him to go to school and got him in school and took him to church. And it seems like he lived the straight and narrow or walked the straight and narrow for his grandparents when they were around. But when they weren't, he was out on the streets living the thug life. Uh-huh. Right. And more likely than not, when he got in trouble, he told his grandparents, it wasn't me, it was a mistake, I didn't do it, and they believed him. And the sad part with Ami Killer is, you know, Mr. Foster, the grandfather, thinks that Nico LaHood can wave a magic wand and open the prison doors and, and Kenneth Foster is going to walk free. And that's not how it is, as he said. Um, that would have been up to the governor anyway. Now, the DA can support a bid for clemency, further clemency. Mm-hmm. Right. But that doesn't mean that Mr. LaHood should have to. And frankly, I, I think as a victim's relative, it would probably be a conflict of interest for him to support it as the DA. Right. So, um, but again, you know, Ms., uh, Nico explained to Mr. Foster that he believed that, you know, Kenneth Foster needed to do his time, serve his sentence, and whatever happens, he'll be fine with it. But he's not going to advocate for Kenneth Foster. Right. And Mr. Right. Foster seemed to accept that very graciously. Um, you know, he's a very courtly, gracious Southern gentleman, mm-hmm. Mr. Foster. And, you know, he, he really doesn't believe that the child he practically raised could be involved in taking another person's life. And he doesn't want to believe it. And that's his right. But... You know, unfortunately, the facts do not, the truth does not, um, does not help Kenneth Foster. Right, absolutely not, absolutely not. But Lisa, we're pretty much ready to put a bow on this one. Uh, Tell us about what we're going to, tell us what we're going to talk about next week and uh, let's get everything ready. And if I have any homework, go ahead and let me know now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness 
Well, uh, we're going to be talking about law of the parties and felony murder rule, which mm-hmm. are uh, basically law of the party states that a person who instigates a crime or an accomplice to a crime uh, can be held legally culpable for the full extent of the crime, even if they didn't directly participate. So someone who arranges her husband's murder can be guilty of capital murder even though she did not pull the trigger herself. And felony Mm -hmm. murder rule states that a person who commits certain felonies, kidnapping, rape, burglary, armed robbery, uh, is legally culpable for any death that occurs, even where there's no specific act against the victim or an an intent to cause the victim's death. So say you're burglarizing a house, you come out of a room, and the homeowner sees you, freaks out, has a heart attack, drops dead, you can be guilty of murder. Not necessarily capital murder, but murder. Right. Even though you didn't touch them, you didn't do anything to them. But, you know, they're 80 years old and they have a heart condition and seeing a strange person in their house frighten them and cause them to have a heart attack. That's probably an oversimplified explanation, but, you know, that's that's off the cuff. So hopefully, like I said, Nico will be able to join us. And uh, I hope whatever situation he had to step away for, I hope everything's worked out and uh, well for him. And so, but we look forward, hopefully he'll be able to join us next week. He's a great guest. Yes, he absolutely was. He's very informative and uh, very intelligent gentleman, well-spoken especially, you know, and he he didn't shy away from his uh, youth as far as uh, getting into trouble, but, you know, he really is. His story is Mm -hmm. one of redemption, so uh, definitely interesting to hear his perspective. Something I I was going to say, but then I I wanted to let you get your question in. That's the difference between Nico LaHood and, and Kenneth Foster. Nico LaHood admits to what he did. He took the consequences for what he did, and then he didn't do it anymore. And he changed right. his life and changed his behavior and changed his outlook. And what kind of amazes me a little bit is that even after the, the tragedy that occurred that happened with his brother – which could have thrown him back, you know, onto the wrong road. That, you know, he rose above that and kept on the right path mm-hmm. to become who he is today. I mean, he's a father. He has four kids. He has, you know, he's still with his parents. He has, still has a good relationship with his parents, with his brother. They're still very close, and it's you know it's amazing, and that's yeah, true. That's true redemption, and he doesn't. I didn't bring it up, but he doesn't shy away from it. He admits that's what I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he and doesn't you know, try and say I was set up, or it was someone else's fault, or somebody else's idea, or you know any anything. Right, he he's completely honest. He says I was young and dumb. 
you know, and that's pretty mm-hmm. much what it boils down to. Yeah, and that's okay. It, it's okay to be young and dumb and to make mistakes. The problem is the people that are young and dumb, when, you know, that when they're still 40 years old, they're still young and dumb, and they still make mistakes, and there's always some excuse or some reason. You know, we had an incident with uh, someone, I'm not going to, you know, mention the names or anything, but right. um, he has a substance abuse problem, and he tried to be cute and purchase substances from someone and not give them the right amount of money and then drive away real quick. Mm-hmm. And the people who you know sell people substances, they don't like that. And they're on. Yeah, they tend to not be happy about that kind of thing. And so he was shot. Not, you know, I mean, I I wouldn't want to be shot anyway, no matter where it is. But, you know, he, he lived, but he was shot. And he tries to say, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. (laughs) And I said, no, you were stupid. And you try to short somebody that doesn't want to be shorted and has a gun. Right. Absolutely. You know, that, that's, those were your actions. That's what you did, and those are the consequences. Well, so, Lisa, let's um, go ahead and let's go ahead and put a bow on this thing, and uh, we'll go ahead and get ready for next week. I look forward to uh, researching this, and hopefully, we'll be able to get Mister LaHood on. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, everyone, thank you again for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. Join us next week for Episode 25, Law of Parties and the Felony Murder Rule. We look forward to seeing you then. Have a great week. Everybody be safe. Good night.